0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Jamie. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your peace. We need those so much. Uh, Will you help us to hear your truth today? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Did you guys notice uh, that the collect that we prayed today was, like, very Advent-like? Jamie, can you put it back up there? Just look at all of this stuff up here. Um, this is what we acknowledge in our prayer today, that God sent his son into the world, right? Uh, to destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God. And, um, and we have that hope. It's one of those Advent words. And uh, that we may purify ourselves for his second coming. Okay? Um, so that we can be like him in his kingdom. It's like they condensed Advent into like one sentence, and made it into a prayer, and I'm very impressed. Uh, But I'm also confused, because it is not Advent yet. That happens at the end of the month, and I was like, why did they, why did they use this here? Uh, But anyway, I'm glad for that prayer, I'm glad we prayed it, and I'm glad uh, for the hope that it mentions that we have, and that we don't just say, oh, thanks for the hope, you know, but that we pray that we use it to help us be more like Jesus. And also I'm glad that we've already acknowledged hope because today's Old Testament reading comes from Job. Pray, Job! (laughs) No one. (laughs) But don't worry, because they picked five, uh, like, hopeful verses, right? Um, It's the I know my Redeemer lives part of Job. And you know, not the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away part of Job. But you guys, the hopeful verses don't mean anything if we don't do the hard stuff first, right? So let's talk about the book of Job. Now, this book, it's wisdom literature. What's wisdom literature? I'm so glad you asked. There's three books in the Old Testament that are considered wisdom literature because they talk about how to live the good life, okay, how to live wisely and how to have an honest faith. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. <laughs> yeah, those are the, the wisdom books. And, um, and if you think about it, okay, Job is like if you took... Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then you threw this dude in there and stirred it all up, you get the book of Job. Because mm-hmm. Proverbs is like, if you live justly and righteously, things go well. And if you live foolishly and wickedly, things go bad. And Ecclesiastes, you know, is sort of like, you know, you can work as hard as you can, you can strive and strive. But there's a season for everything. And you're going to die, so you need to figure out how to enjoy the life you have. I'm paraphrasing. You mix all that together and you get Job. And Job is 42 chapters. Uh, So we've got some ground to cover today, okay? The first two chapters and the last chapter are written in a narrative style, right? It reads like a story. And then all the chapters in between are written in poetry, So reading Job can be kind of difficult, you know, especially if you're not used to reading poetry. And reading this can seem tedious, okay, because it's a book about pain. It's a book about suffering. And we talked about this a month or so ago. We live in a culture that doesn't lament well. You know, we go out of our way to avoid pain and suffering, We'll put our fingers in our ears and pretend that we can't hear about it, right? Pretend it doesn't exist. And meanwhile, the wisdom literature in our Bible is telling us over and over that suffering is part of this earth. And if you are enjoying a moment of your life right now where you're not suffering, I mean, awesome. But chances are you know someone who is, even if you aren't. So these reality checks that we get from the wisdom books teach us how to suffer better and how to be a better comfort to those who are suffering. And, you know, that sounds pretty Christ-like to me. So reading Job, it can be difficult, but it's so beautifully written, right? Despite its theme of pain and suffering. But I confess... I get frustrated with it, my modern western brain gets frustrated that like every time I read it, I end up with more questions than answers. Maybe you're like that too? The good news is, if you are self-aware of that, well, then you can wise up and try to make peace with that, you know? You can make peace with your question to answer ratio. And another thing that can be frustrating in reading Job is that it's a study in theology. And, you know, when we do a theology, often we're trying to explain God or understand him better. So we end up bringing God down to our level, and we make him small. But in reading Job, the theology that comes out is one that expands. It's a theology that says you can't make God smaller. You can't be on his level. And trying to hold on to a theology that keeps expanding, it's kind of hard for our modern Western brains. But now that we're (laughs) self-aware, maybe we can read Job better next time. Maybe we can make peace with our question-to-answer ratio and make peace with... A theology that you can't explain because maybe it's a theology you can only experience. So, in the first chapter, we're introduced to Job. We're told he's a righteous and blameless uh, man, that he fears God, he shuns evil, and he's great about making offerings to God, right? He even makes... Extra offerings just in case, like these insurance offerings, just in case his kids do a sin. And he's wealthy. He has a huge household, lots of livestock. And actually, he sounds a lot like an ancient king. But then the scene changes, and we're taken to what seems like a board meeting between God and his divine council. And the Satan shows up, the adversary. And God asks him, He's like, What have you been up to? And he's like, Oh, just been roaming the earth. Then, apropos of nothing, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright and fears God and shuns evil. And the Satan implies that Job is only serving God because it benefits him to do so, right? It's like, Insurance, right? He's—he thinks it's not a genuine faith, and God says, "No, no, no, that's not true. Go ahead and test him." And the Satan goes and ruins Job's life, real good. All in one moment, Job is told that his livestock is dead, his servants are dead, and oh yeah, all your kids are dead. And what does Job do? Well, it says that he tore his robe and shaved his head. And fell to the ground and worshiped. (laughs) And worshiped. But here's his worship, okay? He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I admit that seems extremely mature. Um, but I have questions. More questions than answers. But God was right. Job keeps the faith. So in chapter 2, we get the same thing, right? The divine council board meeting. Once again, the Satan shows up. He's been roaming the earth. And this time, God's like, oh, have you seen Job? Like, he's still blameless and upright and fears God and shuns evil. And he held on to his integrity even though you ruined his life real good. And the Satan is still not impressed. He's like, oh, sure, but you know how mankind is. They only really care about their own life. Let me, let me hurt him, and he will not worship you. He'll curse you. And God knows, Job, that he has genuine faith, and he says, have at it. So the Satan goes and afflicts Job with some kind of terrible from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And this time, Job doesn't worship. Right? He sits in ashes, and he scrapes at himself with a piece of broken pottery. And then we meet Mrs. Job, and she sounds lovely. Um, she says, are you still going to hold on to your integrity, your faith? You should curse God and die. Now here's the thing, she too has just lost her good life, all her kids, and now her husband is like a human shingles virus, right? And to be fair, God never said that Mrs. Job was righteous and blameless and feared God and shined evil, you know, so go ahead and test her genuine faith. He didn't say that. She's sort of caught in this cosmic crossfire, And she sure is honest about how she feels about it. But Job rebukes her, and he says, shall we accept good from God and not bad? And the author tells us, in all this, Job did not sin with what he said. I have questions. At the end of this chapter, 2 I'm left with a pocket full of questions. And 100% of them start with the word, why? And I used to have this uncomfortable half-thought of, like, what if God did that to me? What if he threw me under the bus to prove a point? But this time when I read the chapter, I was like, oh, this is no problem. I am not righteous and blameless. <laughs> right? If this Satan showed up at the next board meeting and asked, like, oh, may I consider your servant Jamie, God would be like, no, no. (laughs) Do not. She is her own worst adversary. Like, your services are not needed. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Job has three friends show up to comfort him. And they see their friend and his loss, and they weep, and they too tear their robes and put dust on their heads and they sit with him on the ground for seven days in silence because they saw that his suffering was very great. And there's something to be said for silence. Something to be said for silence. That is, Yogi Berra probably said that. The book of Job is a theology of suffering But there's something of a theology of silence, too, right? Because even God's pretty silent through all of this. If we learn nothing else from Job this time through it, we should at least learn maybe how to be silent or more silent. Job and friends stay silent for seven days. He has stopped reacting to this situation, okay? His knee-jerk reaction of like, Oh, well, God giveth and taketh away. Like, oh, you got to take the good with the bad. And these statements, they might be true. They might be wisdom. But they aren't the only things that Job is feeling or pondering. Right? He has genuine faith, but he's not a robot that's just regurgitating platitudes. What's happening during the silence is Job, he's not on automatic pilot anymore. He's not trying to fix things or make things better. And neither are his friends. They're sitting with him and sharing his grief. And we could do well to learn that. Because we live in a noisy, noisy world. Imagine if during our suffering or our friend's suffering, we could feel comfortable enough with silence, to just sit there. Sit there with them and be silent. And share their grief. And be silent. And since we are in the South, feed them and be silent. One of my favorite um, Bible scholars and uh, preachers, her name's Ellen Davis, And she says this about silence. Silence is the friend who challenges us to be healed when we wish simply to be soothed. Right? How often do we reach for the thing that only soothes? Right? How often do we fill the silence with cheap platitudes and then, like, tack God's name onto it while we're doing it? The one I hate the most, (laughs) since we're being honest here is uh, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Now, I've said it. Okay. I've said it. Um, I hate that. Because first of all, you're assuming that God closed the door. Maybe you did. Maybe you closed that door. Maybe this is some kind of consequence you have to deal with. Don't blame God on that. And then secondly, it implies that God doesn't know the difference between a door and a window. yeah. Stop saying that. <laughs> Stop saying that. So for the friends, the comforters, we need to learn the discipline of silence because you know what happens in Job, right, when the friends start speaking. You know, they blow it. They're no longer sharing their friend's grief. Instead, they start accusing him, right? He must have done something, some kind of sin for all of this badness to come in and ruin his life. They don't lament with their friend. Instead, they spout their theology at him. And it's a theology that sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs, right? That theology that says God is just, so if you live rightly, you will be blessed, and if you live wickedly, you will be cursed. Okay, this this is a theology that Job agrees with. Okay, his argument is that he hasn't been wicked, so he doesn't deserve this. And all he wants is to talk to God about this. But his friends, they badger him, and they relentlessly defend God over lamenting with their friend. They should have stayed silent. Now, the seven days of silence changes Job, And you know when you're suffering, how silence isn't easy, right? We crave a distraction. Being alone with your thoughts, oh, it's a scary place. Staying silent while you're in pain, it takes you deeper inside yourself. And in Job's case, and hopefully in ours as we learn to suffer better, it gives Job time to gather his thoughts, like all of them. And he's figured out, like, this proverb version of God that he and his friends have, well, this isn't, this isn't working for him. You know, like, he's, he's detected a glitch in the matrix. And now Job can't remain silent about it. So in chapter 3, he starts his lament, and it's brutal. Okay, it's beautiful poetry, but it is brutal. And it makes his friends uncomfortable. And isn't it something that it was the silence they're sharing in his grief that leads him to being able to fully lament to God? But when that happens, the friends can't handle it. The middle section of this book is Job expressing his pain out loud. And his friends, right? His society and culture, they say, Oh, no, you can't do it that way. And they argue with him back and forth. And they blame him and they defend God. And Job won't give in, right? He loudly and inconveniently holds God accountable. And it's offensive to his friends and his culture. It's offensive to those who think they know everything about God. It's offensive to those who treat God like he's a textbook that you can read and learn. The poetry of Job is beautiful and is really hard. And by voicing his pain out loud and to God's ears, we, the reader, we witness a sufferer who keeps looking for God. So let's look at chapter 19, okay? It's right in the middle of the story. And one of his friends has just told Job to shut up and be sensible. These are two things you want to hear when you're lamenting, Right? And uh, he spouts out some more proverb-like theology at him. So then 19, Job responds with, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me, And make my disgrace an argument against me? Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Right? He tells his friends, You're not helping, you're hurting me. God is the one causing all of this. Verse seven. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. Right? The proverb theology isn't working this time. He, God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together, and they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He accuses God of not answering his call for justice and instead actually attacking Job. This next part is just devastating because he's just said, you know, God has all these troops that are coming against him. And Job's about to tell you that he has no one. Verse 13. He, God, has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer, I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? What a lament. The dude just poured his guts out and begged for mercy. And now we get to the reading for today. 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Guys, where did all that hope come from? And then he ends his argument here with a warning to his friends. If you say, how will we pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. All right, stop blaming me. What a lament. What grief that he pours out, right? And what hope. The theology of a sufferer who not only has genuine faith, but confesses his pain and moves through it to get to hope. Can we learn to do that? His friends can't do that. They don't have the theology of a sufferer yet, right? So they're still static, they're where they were at the beginning. And Job is moving through his pain, loudly. And he's still a mess. Okay, nothing is fixed for him. He's still, he's a human scab. And there's still 18 more chapters to go until he finally gets what he wants, you know, to see God. And even so, in that lament where he cries out for justice and mercy and doesn't yet receive either one, somehow holds to hope he says if only I could write down these words if only I could make them indelible forever I know that my redeemer my vindicator lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and I will see God with my own eyes the theology of a sufferer can say that look what he said in verse 8 right that God has darkened his path so he can't see, he can't move, he can't do anything. And yet his faith says that at the end he will see. And he'll see God. And he will vindicate the injustice, right? He holds that tension. And Not only does he like, just hold that tension, but he proclaims it. Job suffers for another 18 or so chapters And then God shows up in a whirlwind, a God storm. And I wish that we had an hour to spend reading that poem together. And God shows up and he seems to put Job in his place by reminding him that he's God and Job isn't. Okay, he's like, say, where were you when I created all of creation? Do you think you can measure it? Can you control the chaos waters? Do you know where night and day even live? What do you know about the weather, Job? Are you the father of rain? I am. Did you know that sometimes I make it rain in the desert where no one even lives to grow grass that no one will ever see? Are you able to be that extravagant, Job? What do you know about stars? You only know about the ones you can see from your house. What do you know about animals? What do you know about justice? If you think you can be God, then come on and be God. It's a really awesome poem. You guys should definitely read it this week, after lunch, today. When Job replies to the Lord, he's very humble and he confesses that he spoke of things he didn't understand, and he repents. He has seen God. He's seen a God's eye view of creation, and now he understands that his human notions of what he and his friends think about God is just too small. The human notion that God owes the righteous a good life, that is something to repent of. And the Lord then he gets onto Job's friends and he says, you know, that they didn't speak the truth about him the way Job did. And he tells them that Job will need to pray for them, or else God will deal with them. And that sounds not good. And Job does pray for them, and I I guess they live. Right? I have questions. (laughs) And I've never understood the epilogue of this story, okay? It always rang hollow to me because Job finally sees God. And God doesn't answer any of Job's actual questions. And then he's given this, like, consolation family at the end, right? He has ten kids again and, like, twice as much livestock, twice, probably twice as many servants, right? Who's going to run the, the double farm if you don't have the double people, And it mentions that Job's new daughters are the most beautiful in all the land. What what are we doing here, right? And it says he, he gave them an inheritance. Why is that there? I have a lot of questions. So it felt hollow to me. So I know that I'm missing something, right? This is on me. I know we can look at this ending and say, well, God can do whatever he wants. And that's true. That was true at the beginning. That was Job's wisdom at the beginning of the story, and he's been through a lot, right? But it's true. If God wants to come down in a whirlwind and flex over Job that he's God and Job isn't, that's fine. But what about our theology of suffering? Do we move through our pain and suffering and hold on to hope in our Redeemer just for God to say I'm God and you're not. When God showed up and talked to Job, he gave him a bigger perspective, right? And it was it was a gift. I don't think he came to Job to brag on his divinity and to make Job feel insignificant. And I don't think being reminded that we're human is a sign that God thinks we are insignificant. I don't think he thinks any of his creation is insignificant, right? Not the lifeless desert that he extravagantly waters when no one's around. And certainly not the creature that he made in his own image. When you go back and read God's creation speech to Job after lunch today, you see how he talks in detail about nature, weather, time, animals. He goes on and on about different animals and their animal babies and their muscles and wings. He spends a lot of time talking about these two super dangerous monster animals, right? The behemoth and the leviathan. But do you know what he doesn't talk about? The humans he created. Now he does mention them for a moment, but not in the same giddy kind of way that he talks about the weather. You know, he asks Job if he thinks he can be God if he wants to be in charge of justice so bad. Okay, he says in chapter 40, verse 9, Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty and unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. The parts of creation that God shows off The weather, the sea, the stars, and time, and animals. It's awesome, and it's majestic and grand. And it kind of feels like busy work compared to that part. The creature he made in his own image, the ones that he calls to work this earth, the ones he calls to be his people, us. We're the ones who destroy this earth and each other. Do you suppose when Job encountered this part of God's speech that he felt God's suffering, God's grief over his creation that becomes too proud and thinks they're God and that destroys each other and the innocent? Do you think God's heart breaks every time he has to use his arm to crush the wicked where they stand and bury them in dust together? You know, in Genesis... Chapter 6, it says that the Lord saw that mankind was wicked, that their hearts were only evil all the time, and that he regretted that he made us, and he was grieved in his heart. I cannot imagine how big God's suffering is every time we choose another God, every time we choose our way over his, every time we debase ourselves and become wicked and force his creator's hand against us, his creation? Do you think maybe it was this perspective of God's justice and grief that humbled Job and made him confess? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. I also think that maybe this taste of suffering, of God's suffering, is also what gives Job the courage to start his life over. God suffers because we break his heart over and over, and yet look how he talks about his creation, right? Chapters 38 through 41, God clearly loves his creation, like all of it, like the secret parts and the science parts and the National Geographic parts. And it is a wild and dangerous creation. And God enjoys it. He walks the recesses of the deeps of the sea. And he knows the measurements of the whole thing. And he is bonkers for the weather. He loves rain and ice and wind, all of it. And he's extravagant with it, right? He wastes rain on the uninhabited parts just for the land's sake. And he has time for all of it, including time to come and talk to one guy and to share his suffering. So do you think that Job saw a God that loses so much so often that he suffers more than we can comprehend, and yet he still keeps creation going? Right? He puts his heart on the line with every new birth. Do you think Job saw that? And that made him brave enough to start over, brave enough to put his heart on the line to lose it all again someday. Do you suppose that that's why in the second family he stops making those, like, just-in-case offerings, those insurance offerings? And instead, he does something extravagant and unheard of He leaves his daughters an inheritance. Who do you think he learned that from? I hope we learn that. Wisdom literature tells us that suffering is a part of life on this earth. So may we learn from Job the theology of a sufferer, a theology that doesn't shrink God into a textbook, But expands. And may it humble us. And may we have peace that we don't understand the mystery of God. And may we have a theology that doesn't fill silence with cheap words. And also, may we learn how to confess out loud our pain, right? Pour it out with honest words to God to lament to cry out for justice and mercy and with hope all at the same time. They are theology expect our Redeemer to show up for us, right? And to learn from his suffering, okay? How to be brave and how to start over knowing that we could lose it all again. Amen. We're going to continue to worship with uh, communion. And um, Karen's going to lead us through a litany that she has written. And then after communion, we will be doing ministry time over on the carpet.